Welcome to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Tuesday, March 5th, 2019, and yes, you heard that right. My name is Manny Love, and I am sitting in my comfortable living room studio with Hertzy Hertz and Julie Love. We are happy to be joined via Skype by historian, professor, and prolific author Ken Albala. Ken Albala is a professor of history at the University of Pacific United States, received his Master's of Arts degree in history from Yale, and his PhD in history from Columbia University. Ken has been the author or editor of over 25 books on both food and, hi- on both food and the intersections of food and history. His course, Food, a Cultural, a Cultural Culinary History, is available from The Great Courses and The Great Courses Plus, while Dr. Ken's most recent books, At the Table, Food and Family Around the World, and Noodle Soup Recipes, Techniques, Obsession, are available everywhere. My personal favorites are all of his books that do deep dives into history, such as Beans, a History, Nuts, a Global History, and Pancake, a Global History. Our conversation with Ken will not be aired live with our usual phone number, so unfortunately, you won't be able to call in. However, you can still tweet us at Atheist Talk, send us an email to radio at mnatheist.org, or send us a message over on Facebook. Ken, thank you so much for joining me here tonight. Thank you for having me, and happy Pancake Day. Oh, is that a thing, really? It certainly is, yeah, in Britain. This is, um, well, it's Mardi Gras, <laughs> you know, everywhere, everywhere else if you're Catholic. But if um, you're in Britain, it's Pancake Day. Eat up all the eggs and butter and milk. What if you're a lapsed Catholic? Can you still do that? <laughs> Sounds fine. <laughs> I've actually got tomorrow circled on my calendar for a start of uh, the Friday fish fries. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you have to start fasting tomorrow. <laughs> sure, fasting. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned in the intro that you have a course available from the Great Courses, which is actually where I first encountered your work. And I hadn't even made it past the introduction to that course before I had to pause, go to my Amazon wish list, and put your book Beans of History in my wish list. And then, like, by the end of that first lecture, it was in my cart, and there really isn't a question in that. I just wanted to get some adulation out there early. Thank you. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but you're a history professor, but you have a lot of books on food and food history, and I'm just curious, like, when you embarked on your teaching career, was this where you thought your career would take you? Not, not the way I was hired, but the way I sort of reinvented myself. Um, I, I kind of lucked out in grad school that where I was at that time and place was already congenial to working on food. Um, Carolyn Bynum was there writing about the importance of food to women in the Middle Ages. Um, I think Priscilla Parkhurst Ferguson got it was in sociology at the time. And I just had an advisor who was very amenable to anything that was serious intellectual history and ended up doing uh, dietary theory in the Renaissance. So I didn't, I didn't, I could have gone into anything really. This was just a body of literature that I found at the New York Academy of Medicine and said, oh, this will be fun. And it turned out to be a ball and no one had written about it really. And I just, I've never written about anything but food since then. And I guess when I was hired, this, I was hired as just to do Renaissance history basically um, and Western Civ and other courses like that. But very slowly I kind of wove in the history of food, which was the course you saw basically, and uh, history of medicine and a history of alcohol and intoxicants. So I would say about half of what I do now is in some way related to my research. Did I hear you say that you have a book or that you're studying the history of, of al- you've got a book on the history of alcohol and medicine? No, it's not punished. Uh, it's not published actually. These are courses that I teach. So um, the history of alcohol one, you can see all of it's on YouTube. 
<laughs> for nothing. Just go oh, on really? and watch them. Yeah, it's just just a history of every you know spirit and drink and everything in the world and and drugs too. You you need to write this book now. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's, it's kind of already been done. There's there's a handful of good books about the history of alcohol, and this is kind of constructed as a course, which means it's not full of footnotes and it's not. You know, it, it's mostly drawn from other secondary sources. And so I would have to do a lot of work to make it into a book. Yeah, I think Julie and I have read like the history of the world in like six classes or something like yeah, that. Tom that really good. Yeah, it's good. It's really a good book. And then we just finished one on the history of beer that traced beer going beer from like, um, oh, well, I guess all the way from Egypt or whatever, all the way through to today. And it was really interesting to like see like the the news articles talking about the terrible immigration policies of the Germans coming in and thinking these are the same yeah. news headlines that I see today about other countries. That's exactly right. You know, and, and beer is, you know, a fascinating topic in every historical period. It has a different meaning. And, you know, to the Egyptians, it was the, the goddess Sekhmet who turned, um, she, she, she got note that her husband was going to, um, be killed and so she decided she would kill all of humanity and she she starts out as hathor this very sweet cow goddess and then she goes into a rage and turns into sekhmet who's this scary cat and um and Os- uh, osiris tells her um you know you've already killed everyone look at all these rivers <laughs> of red beer and she goes oh you're right so egyptians used to celebrate this by getting blind stinking drunk on beer laying on the temple steps and um sleeping there until until the morning uh yeah the recently actually my own book was uh that i read was uh, all about moonshine and the history of the the american moonshine and the moonshine runners and all that stuff and that was fascinating it is really fascinating. It's even more strange because they're now marketing moonshine. It's always been illegal, of course. It's not now. And through the South, they're kind of like selling this with a hillbilly redneck kind of, you know, message. Like, you know, and they sell it in jars and things. And it's really, it's nothing special. It's just alcohol. You know, I mean, it's still from, you know, it's rotten. It's not aged or anything. And I just find it amazing that they use this this really kind of derogatory image proudly, you know, and saying, you know, of course, this, we need we need to do this to sell it. Because if we just sold it in a bottle, we'd, we'd have to call it vodka. Actually, one of them started to, to sell it in the, the jars and stuff and, and, yeah. and, and actually ended up changing it because they didn't like how they like it actually had a negative. It didn't work. People weren't buying it. So maybe it's changed still, again since since the book I was still written. I that here, definitely. I know which one you mean. It's called something moonshine. Um, yeah, and it's just, just in a in a you know ball jar. Well, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was watching you know watching that Greek courses series. You talked a lot about like food history within like religions, and I thought that was really something I hadn't really thought about before. And even though when you were talking, I was like, well, that makes complete sense that this should be something to to study. Um, But like in your first lecture, you go through the story of Genesis and you equate it like not with literal history, but a story that a group of people like tell to explain their origins. And I was wondering, can you share some of your ideas on the transition from like fruitarians to vegetarians and then like finally to meat eaters? Yeah, well, the ancient Hebrews kind of conceived of their relationship to God in several different historical phases. Um, and Eden was imagined as this place that 
included no violence. That was presumably in God's original plan. So they don't kill to eat, um, including plants. <laughs> they only eat fruits and grains and seeds that come off of the plant that aren't going to harm anything. That that's not considered life yet. But they wouldn't eat, you know, a carrot or or a celery, which you had to kill the plant to eat. Um, and then um, there are various other stages when they get kicked out of Eden. It's not really clear what they're eating, but there's clearly, you know, Cain and Abel. One's a shepherd, one, one's a, a farmer. They're eating more than that, but it, which is confusing. But it's not really until um, after the flood in Noah, when God kind of makes a concession to human violence and says, OK, forget it. Everything is fine for you. Just eat whatever you want. We don't care anymore. Um, and Noah makes the first you know, explicit sacrifice. He kills a bird after they come out and that pleases God. And then there's another phase entirely different when they get the kosher laws, which are really, really complex. And, and I would say generally misunderstood today. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pork is, is avoided, not because they're dirty or anything like that. It's because it's assumed that they're carnivorous and they cannot expiate their sins uh, by making a sacrifice the way humans can. And so the only good animals to eat are those that have a cloven hoof and chew their cud, which are all vegetarians. And so they don't they don't kill to eat. They're they're ritually clean. So, you know, when I think about when I think about kosher, I think about just Judaism and I think. But I, so are you saying that the, the prior to the kosher laws that get put out in what, like Leviticus and the, yeah. and the sub, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, and there, there's a term for that, like escaping the Septuagint. Yeah, I'm I'm not Jew Jewish, but so prior to that, like there really wasn't like a written or spiritual like food law. Well, these I mean the the books of the Old Testament are all written down by various authors at various times. So right, right, so right. you know, and they're imagining what the past was like. This is a mythical understanding of the past. I don't know whether we can say, you know, that they were even Jews before they get the law until Moses is given right. the Ten Commandments and they get those books. I don't think, you know, they're they're the ancestors of the Jews in the same way that, you know, Genesis is not about any particular people per se. Um, and I guess, and the laws are more complicated than that. You know, there's all sorts of other things that are understood, I don't think, well, by referring to science. Like people often say, well, in, you know, no shellfish is because they can be contaminated and and you know, they make some sort of scientific rationalization for why they didn't eat various things. And I think it makes much more sense to understand the way these Levitical priests kind of ordered the universe was that animals which move in their own medium in a way that's intelligible to us, animals need to have legs and move, birds need to have wings and fly, uh, fish need to have scales and fins to, to move. Things that didn't fit into that taxonomy were just un unexplainable to them but they're usually uh, marked as unkosher i want to i want to get back to that um we're gonna unfortunately we're gonna have to go into a break because i've got like 30 seconds before commercial but i do want to ask you you know wanted to touch base on like the idea that you know you don't eat pigs because they're dangerous and whether or not anybody else in the world at the time was eating pigs so please stay with us through the break hertzy julie and i will return to atheist talk with their author and food historian ken albala you're listening to am 950 ktna the progressive voice of minnesota
Welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned into Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Love. We are not live today. This is a pre-recorded episode of Atheist Talk. And I'm joined in my living room studio by Hertzie Hertz and Julie Love. And in just a moment, we'll return to Ken Albala, food historian, professor, and author of over 20 books on food and food history. I know you just finished listening to commercials, but I wanted to give my weekly shout out to Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina. It is true that Atheist Talk is produced with funding from both Minnesota Atheists and Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina, Minnesota. But it's also true that the buffet at Cucumbers is historic, fantastic, ginormous, and one of my favorite places to grab a bite, whether it's being out, like on after the air or just spending an enjoyable meal with friends. So when we promote Cucumbers in Edina here on the show, please know I'm actually being genuine. They really are a great place to visit. So please consider visiting our sponsors, and if you do, let them know that you appreciate their support of Atheist Talk. If you would like to advertise in this program and help keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. And now back to Ken. All right. So Ken, going into the break, um, I was curious, like, so as an atheist, when I talk to, you know, Christians and stuff, they will tell me, well, one of the proofs of the Bible is that, you know, pigs are terrible to eat and they're really unhealthy. And this is proof that God exists. And outside of all of that theology. I was under the impression that a lot of people ate pigs. Is that true? or um, A lot of people did eat pigs, even in the vicinity of the ancient Hebrews. Uh, one argument is that they were so afraid of losing their identity that they made a rule, don't eat what the Philistines and Adamites and all these other you know, people eat. And that would keep them separate and don't marry in with them, you know, because that's the worst thing. Once you once you have relations with someone, you're obviously going to eat with them. Um, but in general, in the ancient world, no, a pig is considered very nutritious. I mean, you know, according to Galen, it's the meat that's closest to human flesh. And if you have a digestion that's strong enough to, to, to process it, it's the one that you should eat. Yeah, I was just watching this great <laughs> Netflix series, Acid, Fat, uh so, yeah, some in nose rats. Oh great. my gosh, that was <laughs> yeah. great. And they were showing the the harvesting of the pig and on all the meat that they came out of it and all the fat. And they're like just eating the, the fat just like after it's been just barely just you're not even processed. And I thought, okay, that's a little much for me, but it looks really tasty. <laughs> so yeah, I love fat. And you know, I have this I have this idea about fat that most ancient cultures revered it. They considered it the thing you would throw onto the altar to offer to God so that he would smell the smoke and it was a soothing odor unto the Lord. I mean, he, he loves the smell of barbecue and it's ghee in ancient India. It's, it's, you know, almost universally the thing that is most prized, which makes sense because it's the most calorically valuable and it's the most delicious part of any animal. And, you know, I've always wondered whether, I don't know, how how fat has had this, this really, well, every food goes through this, you know, they go through cycles of being valued and then and then demoted or, or feared and fat was one of those that around the turn of the century got this bad association people thought oh lard suet you can't eat that because you will become fat and lardy and we're just beginning to realize like margarine was much worse for you and trans fats you know are obviously terrible and um you know we're seeing a resurgent and resurgence in pig fat thankfully because it's it is tastier and it's better for you than you know some processed i can't believe it's not butter spray. <laughs> um, so, so I actually do have a follow-up question to Maddie because Maddie's fascination with pigs and mine is shellfish. And my first, my, my big question is like, why exactly 
shellfish. Was there something about them? And were the he- were the Hebrews in an area where they had easy access to shellfish? They definitely did, um, because the you know Mediterranean is right along the coast there. Um, their uh, apprehension about it was that they're animals that seem to walk underwater. <laughs> they don't have scales and they don't swim like fish should. Um, that's the only like even vaguely comprehensible explanation that I've ever heard. It still isn't very satisfying. No. So, it's, so it's the the typical kind of I don't understand it, therefore I don't like it. <laughs> Right. It's like snakes. You know, they're scary because they should have legs and walk and they slither. And how do they move? And, you know, bats should really be walking and they're flying, although they're mammals. So, so it's, it's definitely that, that uncategorizability of, of these weird animals that makes them unclean. In the book that comes with the Great Courses Plus series, you have a recipe for gelfite fish. Is that, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Delta. What you like? Gefilte. Thank you. Is <laughs> you didn't know how to say gefilte fish? Okay, yeah. It's, okay. I'm sorry. It's. I really do have a recipe for that. You know, I don't remember doing that. Oh, at all. I was wondering if you tried it. I make gefilte fish all the time. Yeah, it's a very standard kind of Jewish. Um, it, it evolved from something in which you'd stuff the fish, which is what it, the word means, stuffed fish with other ground fish and vegetables and things, and then steam it or boil it. And it came later to mean a kind of canal that's just flesh of the fish, and then it gets cooked in this fish stock. So it gets kind of gelatinous, and it, and if you buy it in the store, like from, from Manischewitz or something, it's floating around in this like snotty liquid that has these little, little... <laughs> it sounds perfectly horrible, but for, for people who grew up on this, it's so delicious. And and I think if you make it fresh, it's even better. But if you've ever had a, a French like fish canal, it, it's the same thing. I was not raised in a good culinary tradition. I my mom doesn't listen to this show, and if she does, I'm sorry, mom. Um, we black pepper was a was a the seasoning of choice, and then it was used sparingly. <laughs> so thankfully, my wife has opened my eyes and my taste buds up over the last 20 years to a lot more food <laughs> i was that's good you know i i grew up in a household my, where my mother um rest her soul uh, was a really bad cook and she would do horrifying things like make fish in the dishwasher <laughs> and like kind of on weight watchers so there was always some bizarre thing came on the table and i was like okay what the hell is this this was in the 70s you know and, and it was it was really frightening. And I think the moment I got a chance to cook for myself in college was like, I'm never looking back. I'm never, never going on a, on a food plan again. I'm never, you know, eating what other people cooked for me. I, I was just going to say the, the gelda fish or whatever it's called sounds a lot like a Jewish version of Ludafisk. <laughs> well, you know, it's not. It, and the main reason is that this is ground up and it's fresh and it's really kind of sweet, strangely enough. You serve it with with horseradish on the side. Ludafisk is its own magnificent, bizarre thing, which is cured in ammonia, you know, and so it's got this very strange texture and it's it's also luscious, but it's the whole fish. I mean, it's like a cod that's, you know, I, I, I'm probably the only person in this state who loves Ludafisk. I actually have some in my freezer right now. Well, I don't remember where I'd heard it, but 
something like, you know, Minnesotan, Minnesotans eat more lutefisk than anybody in Scandinavia to begin with, even though we yep. think of ourselves as Scandinavian. Yeah. And most of it is actually processed there, too. It's it's not made in. I mean, I, I had it in Norway and, I, you know, I got to talking with this guy and he said, oh, yeah, this came from Minnesota. <laughs> I was like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> some things are made in taiwan some things are made in minnesota like, yeah <laughs> all right well i am gonna unfortunately have to go go back to another break when we get back i wanted to talk a bit jump from judaism to christianity a bit um but yeah we'll have to pick that up after the commercial break so we'll return to our guest author professor and historian ken albala after this short commercial break please stay with us i'm maddie love with hertzy hertz and julie love you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF, AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950, KTNF. I'm your host, Maddie Love, in studio with Hertzy Hertz and Julie Love. And on the phone, we have author, professor, and food historian Ken Albala. This is a pre-recorded episode, so we won't be able to take phone calls. But if you'd like to chat with us, you can still email us at radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at Atheist Talk, or find us over on Facebook. I want to thank our dedicated group of volunteers and the generous donations of you, our listeners. You help keep Atheist Talk on the air and in podcast form. This week, we're sending a special thanks to our Patreon donors who had a chance to listen to this episode last week. If you were able to help with the donation, please consider doing so at our Radio Fund page or our Patreon, where you can get early episodes and extended interviews over at patreon.com slash atheisttalk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. We couldn't do the show without you, and we deeply appreciate your support. Music for Atheist Talk is by composer and member Brent Michael David and is used with permission. Please note all opinions are of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect the Minnesota Atheist Organization, although I think many people in the organization do eat Ludafisk. All right, mischief managed, and we will get back to Ken Albala. All right, so right before the break, uh, I had a kind of a, I wanted to jump, just change gears a little bit and talk about like some of the food customs in Christianity. And one of the things, which maybe this is the opposite of food, is fasting in Christianity? Like, I know that fasting existed in Judaism, and I know that fasting exists in other other like cultures. But do you know why fasting became such an important part of Christianity? Yes, it, there is fasting in Judaism, but it's normally um, either for one specific Day of Atonement, which is Rosh Hashanah, um, Yom Kippur, and um, there's also fasting for emergent occasions. So if you do something really bad, like David, when he spotted Bathsheba naked and said, do I want a piece of that? And sends her husband to the front in a war to die where he does. And then he gets her. Um, David feels really, really awful about this. And he says, you know, God, please don't punish me and puts sackcloth on and puts ashes on his head and, um, and then decides to not to eat as a, as a way to atone for his sins. So it's in the Old Testament all the time. And Jesus himself fasts um, for 40 days, and so do some of the apostles. But there's no consistent um, dietary restrictions in early Christianity at all. There's nothing. In fact, exactly the opposite. They want to distance themselves from the Judaic kosher laws. And so, you know, there's scenes in the New Testament that are the, the weirdest, is where Peter has this dream and there's a big net with animals in it. <laughs> And God says, go ahead. And Peter says, I can't touch those. Those are all unclean. And God says, Peter, rise and eat. <laughs> and he says, okay, I guess I'll eat this stuff. So, that, you know, there's there's things like that. And then and then all sorts of questions in um, that Paul writes to uh, various communities like the Corinthians 
when they wonder, can we eat? Can we go to the communal barbecue? Everyone's having really great ribs. And is it sacrilegious for us to eat something that's sacrificed to a pagan god? And Paul has to say, it really isn't because every food is good for you, but you might lead your neighbor or the guy sitting next to you into becoming a pagan if you do that because you know barbecue is great so you better not do it and so there's questions about food but it only really occurs um to writers after about the uh, several centuries later 300s 400s tertullian and um um saint jerome writes on this i mean a handful of, of early christian writers who decide that there is a direct correlation between the amount of meat that you eat and the amount of flesh you put on your body and the amount of excess that your body can't put into muscle and or burn, and that will become sperm. And it sounds really weird, but sperm in men and women, both men and women have sperm. This is totally out of Galen. And that having this plethora of sperm will initiate, will, into a, uh, will sort of turn your libido on and you will want to um, get busy, you know, as it were. And so the period of fasting, which is about to start tomorrow um, <clears throat> on uh, Lent, is a time when you should atone for your sins and avoid those things that are going to make you horny, like meat, eggs. Um, dairy products, cheese, and everything else is okay. So it's not really vegetarian. It's vegetables. Fish are okay because they're not nutritious. Um, vegetables are fine because they're they're really bad for you. They're watery and cold and moist, and they, they will never. You can never get you know um, excited on a diet of salad. It's just not going to happen. And so monastic, you know, monks will eat vegetables. The Carthusians not notoriously would have a, a whole diet just of vegetables. Um, in order to, you know, keep their thoughts pure. <laughs> I, I think that's true. I don't know if you know any vegetarians. Um, and, you know, and so the idea really of, of this period of Lent, which, you know, obviously it exists still in Christianity, in uh, the Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's actually even more strict. But all the Protestant churches have done away with it because it was, you know, because there's nothing biblical about it. There's no, no, um, there's nothing in the, in the of the New Testament that says people should not avoid meat for 40 days. So the whole fish thing, that's... I, I thought that I'd picked that up in one of your lectures. You were talking about, yeah. that, you know, fish are like cold and phlegmatic or something like that. So yeah, it's okay that's to exactly eat. it. That's right. back so, so the, the Greek humors and all of... All exactly of it. So of... the day before the Sabbath, starting on Friday night, you have fish, so you're not going to have lewd thoughts um, the day after or the night after, which is Saturday leading into Sunday, which is the Sabbath. So, again, I, I grew up Catholic. There was actually, I heard this, and I'm guessing now it's probably an urgent, urban legend, that part of the reason they let you do fish was because then it was to help the fish market. <laughs> This is it is it's, it's a it's a papal legend. It's not even an urban legend. I think that you know the there's I've read it many times that the Pope, um, his family came from a fishing village where they would all suffer, and so he, you know, made this rule. But it's it's not true. Um, there are other stories. 
there are other stories that are that are true, which are e- equally as interesting, is they kept Lent on the books in England, primarily because the rulers were afraid that if they discouraged fish eating, that, that of course no one would eat fish willingly, that they would lose out, they had no national navy at the time, that they would lose their merchant fleet and the country would be defenseless to invasion. And so they had to keep it on the books so that people would eat fish and there'd be ships. Um, Eventually, they did. They just ignore it in England, but and then, then it, you know, had a navy around the same time. So, like the opposite, the opposite of fasting, uh, gluttony is something that was looked favorable favorably, like in ancient Greece, in some situations. But it's a sin in Christianity. So, I guess in your experience, how often is the amount of food someone eats tied to their morality? It's it's not a sin um, until a point in the Middle Ages. And in fact, through, for most of, of the history of Christianity, there is an occasion when excess is is good and encouraged. And today is the day. It's, it's, you know, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, for very good reason, when people would go berserk, eat and drink and uh, engage in acts of violence and... Uh, the birth rate nine months after <laughs> Mardi Gras uh, on parish registries spikes. Presumably, they're doing other things as well. <laughs> and the um, you know the attitude toward gluttony and excess, I think, is actually more a Protestant thing. It's more a Calvinist thing that when people say you know you should eat a very sober diet all year round and never have luxuries or spices or excessive amounts of food and your food should be plain and simple and and sober um that's a that's a protestant uniquely protestant thing historically and you know it shows up in massachusetts where they don't season anything and <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you know your mother's <laughs> you know the unseasoned food has has some some roots in that also Quite possibly. Uh, Julie's traced my family tree, so she could probably <laughs> look that up at some point. Well, um, among, among Lutherans, absolutely. You know. Which Minnesota is full of Lutherans. Yeah, yeah Western yeah. Washington, though. Yeah. But we, got, we all came from somewhere. Yeah, the, there was a book I read called uh, Scandinavian Humor and Other Myths. <laughs> and it's oh. great. And there's an entire chapter about how bland and white the Minnesotan food is. Yeah, it's... My, yeah. my Washington State food was essentially Minnesotan food. I do want to I want to jump back to pigs again because, you know, bacon. Um, but Jews are forbidden to eat yep. pigs. Christians not only eat pigs, but at many points in history, use it as a way to persecute Jews. But Muslims are like, once again, forbidden to eat pigs. Are you aware of why there is so much emphasis placed on pigs? Well, we, we forget that at the time Islam arose, um, in the you know the early Middle Ages, there were Jewish and Christian communities everywhere, including in Arabia, including Mecca and Medina, and pagan communities also. And Islam had to kind of situate themselves in relation to them, and they by and large adopted the Jewish uh, dietary structures, and many many of the Jewish uh, communities converted to Islam. So so that's. I think that was the rationale of it, but um, but you know what's interesting in the Quran, it's kind of like like Muhammad is kind of figuring out his way through the course of it, so he changes his mind a few times, most notoriously about alcohol. Alcohol is perfectly okay at the beginning of it, 
by the end, he's like sees this guy get drunk and get in a fight. It's like this can't be good for Muslims. So, um, so it evolves the the food, and it, and it is all based on his personal experience. So, so I think the the pork prohibition, and I should say the halal and haram uh, laws are simpler than in Judaism, um, but they include not eating animals of prey and pork. So you, you mentioned alcohol, and I know that's, especially here in Minnesota, alcohol in, in the Muslim communities is another big issue. We had a, about 10 years ago, Muslim cab drivers refused to transport fares that included alcohol. But, you know, in your lecture series, you talk about Muslim vineyards. And I was wondering, can you explain that? What yeah. sounds like a contradiction to like our modern years. Yeah. Well, you have to remember that um, wine originates in the Caucasus. So it's Georgia and Azerbaijan and Turkey and the Fertile Crescent. And so it's there long, long before Islam is there. And through the ages, you know, the, 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 there's a longer history of winemaking there. And, and it still goes on in Georgia. These big kevri, you know, uh, containers that go underground, they still make wine in the ancient way. There's a much longer history of winemaking there than there is prohibition. And the prohibition only applies to those sects that believe that the state law should be the same as the Quran. Um, so if you were in Iran after the revolution, if you're in uh, Saudi Arabia, places like that, their wine is very hard to find. Alcohol is, very, is, is technically illegal. If you're in a place like Turkey, um, they make great wine. They make raki. They make, you know, and Egypt uh, in Lebanon, it's Iraq. So, so it's not like Muslim countries are are all consistently against alcohol. Some aren't. Some aren't. Right. I just yeah. It just seemed it seemed it seemed like a contradiction because it's yeah. some, But at the same time, I understand that life is more complex than that. But it's like being you know a secular. If your heritage is part of uh, one religion. You don't necessarily have to follow all the rules to be in that in that religion. I was raised as a Jew, but I've never been kosher. So. <laughs> I need to go to another break. I'm so sorry. We're with our other guest, Ken Albala, right after this short commercial break. I'm at 11 Studio with Hertzie Hertz, and you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned into Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Love, in my living room studio with Hertzie Hertz and Julie Love. And on Skype, we have author, professor, and food historian Ken Albala. This is a pre-recorded episode, so we won't be able to take phone calls. But if you'd like to chat with us, you can still email us at radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at Atheist Talk, or find us over on the Facebooks. So Ken, right before we went to break, uh, I unfortunately had to cut you off. And you were mentioning um, your Jewish heritage. Is that something you kind of want to talk more about? or? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was uh, kind of forced to go to Hebrew school when I was a little boy. And... Um, resented it and it was a terrible experience and <laughs> hated every minute of it and went through a proper bar mitzvah and whatever and said, okay, I'm never setting foot in one of these again. And then um, my father literally on his deathbed said, you're going to have your boys bar mitzvah, right? And I'm like, dad, no, why? What, why in God's name do I need to do this? And I only found out then that he hadn't been, uh, that he was, had no religious upbringing and really felt uncomfortable in going into a temple or anything. I did the same, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, with my kids weathered it, not not me, but much more progressive uh, congregation. I, I had an Orthodox upbringing. But, you know, the, the irony is that I have no religion whatsoever. 
And so as much as I'm fascinated with the topic and how important it is in history and how obviously it informs, you know, people's eating habits, I have no, I have no belief in, in a God at all. I just find the trappings very interesting, which is, which is very interesting because, you, you know, you find other people who say, oh, I have this deep belief in God, but all the, what the churches and, you know, the formal, uh, you know, rituals of church are nonsense. I, I think exactly the opposite. You know, I love the physical structures and the music and the liturgy and the theology even really, really interest me. And in a way, it's it's also given me a perspective because I teach a Reformation, uh, Renaissance and Reformation course. So it's given me a perspective that is entirely neutral. I don't have to be, you know, I wasn't raised in any particular Catholic denomination. So it's given me a, a good impartiality to all those debates that happened in the 16th century but that worked on directly. I actually had... It didn't even occur to me to ask you at what we were setting this interview, what your religious persuasion may or may not be. I was like, okay, it's atheist talk. If he's willing to come on, like, I I don't care. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I, I don't want to finish this show without talking a bit more about your other books. Um, your latest book is Noodles, Soup, Recipes, Techniques, Obsession. It looks fantastic. Um, it's available in hardcover, paperback, and even on Kindle, which, no, it's not for me. Um but what can readers who pick up this book expect to find? It's a tour of um, noodle soups around the world. And it's a philosophy of why you should make noodles at home, why you should carefully choose the bowls, make the stocks yourself, uh, find the best ingredients to include, you know, the proteins and the vegetables. And it's, it was just this weird long journey I went on by accident um, having, I was teaching a class on alcohol actually in uh, Boston, and they gave me a lovely apartment without any utensils. <laughs> and they said, "I'm not going to live here for six weeks and not cook." So I bought a little pot and started eating ramen for breakfast. And I thought, "This is great. What if I what if I'm missing in life?" And then just started to add good ingredients to it, and they were spectacular. And I thought, I, "Why don't I just make the stock? Why don't I make the noodles?" So it ended up being about three years of noodle soup for breakfast every morning. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I just halfway through it, I said, I just have to write a book about this. It's crazy. I'm, I'm doing it already. I basically learned how to make almost every noodle on earth. So I, what's the difference? Um, there's a, what's the oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was wondering, what's the difference? On, I was, there's a few that I haven't been able to get. But, but. What's the difference between a noodle and pasta, or is there a difference? Nothing. Nothing. There's no okay. difference, no. <laughs> but yet I've never seen anybody make a ramen stock and then add elbow macaroni. There's absolutely no reason on earth you can't. Oh, really? Um, it's just that, you know, in Italy, I think what it really comes down to is they have never learned how to use chopsticks. So eating a long noodle in soup is unthinkable to Italians because it's too messy. So they tend to put those in sauce and they tend to put little spoonable noodles in their soup um, and pasta. Um, you know, do you call is macaroni a kind of noodle? I, I think so. <laughs> you know, it's they're you know. So I know it's probably hard, like picking a favorite kid, but of all the books you've been a part of creating, do you have a favorite? I do have a favorite. It is the first book I wrote. And I think when I did it, I didn't realize what an incredible luxury it was to spend several years doing research and basically nothing else. Um, it was called Eating Right in the Renaissance. And it's like a, sometimes I look at that thing and I say, how the hell did you do this? It's, you know, there's 
there's quotations from six different languages in it. And it's just, you know, several hundred books I read in the course of writing that. And there's no way I could ever do anything like that again. But I was 20 something when I did you know, most of the work, work on it. So I think there's um, there's something to be said for when you're young, you know, you don't know as much, but you don't know what you can't do. Either. <laughs> so, you you know, you just plow on and and um, I'm still amazed at that. Book. Well, and in searching Amazon, I see you were part of creating uh, a cultural history of food. It's a six volume set that I would love to read and get cover to cover. But 400 bucks is out of my price range right now. Um, no, you can buy those individually. Oh, good. For being paperback. So, That's from Bloomsbury. And there's a handful of other things that I've done that are encyclopedias, uh, the encyc- uh, food cultures around the world I edited, and the Sage Encyclopedia of Food and Nutrition. And these are not, you, you can't buy those either. They're hundreds of dollars, but they're usually available through subscription services online. So if you go to a public library or university, they're well, I was wondering, like, is it challenging to write textbooks and then turn around and write books that you know, are meant to be sold at Barnes and Noble. Well, it is hard because you get, I mean, I, I hope that I have many different voices that appeal to different audiences. And sometimes I will write a book like this noodle soup book. And people said, this is too academic. This is dry. <laughs> or, or sometimes I'll write a book and, and people will say, this is not academic enough. This is too popular. But every now and then I'll strike a balance that seems to appeal to everyone beans did that um it was just just academic enough but light and silly and funny enough to appeal so uh, that's a hard narrow line to walk yeah i i i really i'm fine with reading dry books because it would cram the facts because when i want like super awesome storytelling i will go to fiction at the same time i do still really enjoy like watching or reading something that's full of information that also still is able to tell an intriguing story which is why I loved your your Great Courses course so much is because you were able to weave those stories into that. And if I understand right, you are going to be having another one coming up this summer? I'm working on it right now. Yeah, it's um, a history of uh, or a series on historic cooking. So I'm going to choose a cookbook for each episode and cook a handful of dishes from it. And talk about the context and the time and place and the author and who could have read this and used it. And I'm, I'm about, um, and I think I have 18 out of 24 episodes written. So I have a few more to write, like right now. And then we'll film in the summer. All right. Well, we are just about out of time, unfortunately. I, I feel like I, I actually have like two pages of questions that I didn't even get to on Hinduism and, and things like that. He's just going to have to come back. <laughs> so uh unfortunately i'm gonna have to cut us off thank you for tuning into atheist talk we'd love for you to join us again next sunday and remember if you miss an episode live you can always catch the podcast available on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify or your favorite podcasting app i'm proud to be on the air with minnesota atheists and i hope that you've enjoyed the show the show depends on the generous support of our members our sponsors and donors please consider supporting the show the donation link at mnatheist.org this has been atheist talk on am 950 ktnf the progressive voice of minnesota